turn the page And time that I breathe brings just a day or two Close my, close my, close my eyes I couldn't find a way So I settled for one day to believe in me Tell me, tell me, tell me lies Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies Oh no, no, you can't disguise Can't disguise Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Tell me lies Oh no, no, you can't disguise. Can't disguise. No, you can't disguise. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. I'd go to the moon in a nanosecond. Uh, the problem is we don't have the technology to do that anymore. We used to, but we uh, destroyed, destroyed that, technology. that technology. And it's a painful process to bring it back again. Yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome to the Tory Says Show. It's the 27th of April. 2021. So there's a lot of recycling. Like I said yesterday, it feels like nobody has any news to talk about. They're recycling information, right, that is already out there making a big deal. Why are they bringing it now when it's over a decade old, right? And some of it is three years old. So I'm going to show you how they're making a big deal about, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo calling out John Kerry who, by the way, is in China in the middle of Taiwan talks, which is like, why are you stirring the pot? See, that's the thing. This is a human quality that I just don't understand. If you don't want trouble and you want to maintain your course, right, stop, you know, pooping where you eat and stop stirring pots. Then people leave you alone. Because the minute you start stirring pots, things start rising to the surface again that you didn't want anyone to see. That's usually how it happens. So here is, um, at the time, Secretary Pompeo threatening Iran and slamming John Kerry. Here's a report from CNN from 2018. For joining us. Please, it's great um, to be with you. Let's start with North Korea. Uh, you said yesterday you're going to begin negotiations with the North Koreans, um, and you'll be meeting with your foreign minister colleague up in New York. But... How much do you think ultimately a deal with North Korea is going to um, end on the, pre the relationship between President Trump and Kim Jong-un? So that relationship is certainly very important, as is the relationship between Chairman Kim and President Moon. They had their inter-Korean summit this past week uh, where they made uh, incremental progress, good stuff. Uh, President Trump's always known uh, that we needed first to stop their testing of their nuclear weapons systems as well as their missiles. We've accomplished that. Uh, and then the process of full denuclearization can begin to take place. So we're working on that. There have been lots of conversations, lots of work, lots of negotiation at multiple levels. But your point that the two leaders um, will ultimately have to finish this thing off, close this deal, is certainly the case. Is the president allowing uh, Kim Jong-un to set the pace and scope knowing that he made these commitments and trust that he'll make that decision ultimately? Well, we knew the pace uh, would be uneven. Um, but that progress each and every day was important. We think, we think we're getting that. Uh, remember, the sanctions remain in place. The, the world sanctions, not America's sanctions. The UN Security Council resolutions demand that Chairman Kim 
make this decision to denuclearize, and those sanctions and the enforcement of those sanctions will continue until such time as that occurs. That's the that's the important element that is different from what previous negotiators have done. We've always in America handed him a pile of money or his father a pile of money and said, we hope you'll denuclearize. Our approach is different. It is to continue to enforce the sanctions until such time as we get to the end of the process. Okay, let's move to Iran and particularly Iraq and Syria. You've had two attacks by Iranian militia-backed militias um, in U.S. diplomatic facilities in Iraq. The U.S. has said that it's going to make sure all Iranian troops are going to leave Syria and is willing to stay the course. Are we headed towards a confrontation with Iran? Well, Iran has been confronting the world as the world's largest state sponsor. Seems there's an escalation for, though, for quite some time. Uh, they have armed militias. The Lebanese Hezbollah now Khatib Hezbollah and militias in Iraq. They're arming the Houthis in Yemen, launching missiles into the Gulf states. Uh, the United States has begun to apply economic and diplomatic pressure on Iran to prevent them from doing this. That's our mission. And it is true, Elise. Uh, we have told the Islamic Republic of Iran that using a proxy force to attack an American interest will not prevent us from responding against the prime actor. That is, we will not let Iran get away with using a proxy force to attack an American interest. Iran will be held accountable for those incidents. Even militarily? They're going to be held accountable. If they're responsible for the arming and training of these militias, we're going to go to the source. And you criticized Secretary of State John Kerry, former Secretary Kerry, for his meetings with Iran, um, saying he needs to get off the stage. But can you tell me, how is this jeopardizing your efforts right now? No American, and in particular, no former Secretary of State, should be actively seeking to undermine the foreign policy of the United States of America. You know, frankly, this was Secretary Kerry's problem. He always refused to treat our enemies like enemies. And here he is today as the former Secretary of State telling our adversaries, the world's largest state sponsor of terror, people who are conducting assassination attempts in Europe, just wait out this administration, giving foreign policy advice directly contrary to what President Trump is trying to is achieve on behalf though? of America. Is it working? Every American, especially former Secretary of States, should be advocating for America's foreign policy. It's that straightforward. The president said last night, Mr. Secretary, that, and again this morning, that key allies are worried about the declassification of these some of these Russia documents. Um, why are they concerned? Who's concerned? And didn't you, when you were CIA director, anticipate this might happen? Well, I'll leave to the intelligence community and the FBI and Justice Department to make the decisions about particular documents. I, I'm frankly not familiar with the contents of them, but I'll, but I'll say this. I am very confident that this administration won't do a single thing which will put at risk a source, a method, our partners around the world. Um, we haven't done so to date, and I am very confident that President Trump and our team won't do so in the future. Do you think this is all a witch hunt, this Miller, Mueller probe, as the president has said? Well, I've been clear since, since I was first in front of the Senate for my confirmation hearing as a CIA director uh, that we understand that there are many countries attempting to undermine American democracy and Western values, and that in 2016, and frankly, in elections before that, the Russians attempted to interfere in our election. I would add to that list in 2018 and perhaps in 2020 as well, China, Iran, North Korea, non-state actors, each of whom has an interest in trying to undermine Western democracy, especially here in the United States. We are working our tails off to prevent them from having any impact on any election anywhere in the United States. 
Bob Woodward in his book suggested that the president felt that this Russia probe is you know, weakening him and U.S. diplomacy. Have you found that in your meetings? I have found that moving away from leading from behind has been welcomed by the world. Uh, the partners I met with the CIA director and just this week I met with another half a dozen. Um, they understand that America is back. We are engaged. We are leading from a core set of principles that they all can rally around and begin to help us build coalitions to solve some of the most difficult problems facing this world that were left with us, left to us by the previous administration. The Woodward book describes a president who doesn't understand national security, a cabinet that is moving things around to, to save the country from, uh, from the president's national security. Have you seen that? Do you do that? I find that absolutely ludicrous. There, there is, ah, be careful. There aren't many members of the president's cabinet who have spent as much time with him as I have. I briefed him almost every day as CIA director. I see him and talk to him every day now. This is a president who is fully informed, well briefed, listens, asks hard questions, and is leading his foreign policy team towards solving so many of the problems that plague this world. Um, I wish the previous administration had acted with such diligence and power, but it left to us. We'll get it right. And that is when he first slammed Kerry, right? And this is why he then moved into the State Department. Because many, many times I've said that the biggest atrocities in regards to um, covert and clandestine operations are executed via the State Department. Uh, they're dirtier than anything. They do everything. Like the international office is insane. All of them are saying, I mean, yeah, no one's no one's ever gotten back to, you know, what's happening there. And when we should revisit the State Department today under uh, the direction of the Truman National Security Project or Institute, they keep changing their name, that recruit for the Council of Foreign Relations and they push their agendas. I mean, now they're the ones running it. And uh, let's not forget that the former uh, board of directors on a company where Hunter Biden was vice president is now running the show. Uh, this is just pure insanity. And it seems like a lot of nepotism going around and everything. So I think we need to travel back in time. Um, I'll take us. I, I believe we should go to um, 2011, where there were discussions about cartel violence and uh, the Iranian connection to all of these things. It was quite interesting. I believe that you might even see me in, um, in this hearing spot Tory. Can you spot Tory? Um, so this is uh, quite a wild um, thing that I, I, I just, just listen to what is being said. And those of you watching, can you spot Tory? Testimony. Um, let me just say from the outset, and I think we're going to have a very lively uh, uh, discussion, a, a good dialogue here today. But let me say from the outset, I don't view this as a Republican-Democrat issue. I don't see it as a partisan issue. I, I see this as a bipartisan issue. When it comes to national security and, and securing our borders, uh, it, this should be a bipartisan issue. And I think, you know, if anything, uh, it, yesterday's authorization, I, you know, Mr. Coyar and I uh, sponsored several bills together, one to double the uh, size of the best teams, another one to provide a, a border area security initiative grants for uh, local law enforcement and sheriffs, uh, and that's as it should be. 
So I'm not going to try to spin this into a political theater event. Uh, what I'm interested in are these two generals who have taken a lot of time out of their, uh, you know, they got, they're busy, but they took a lot of time to write at what I thought was a very good report. You know, we've talked about maybe coming up with a, a five-point plan, if you will, or a ten-point plan um, in terms of how we can better secure this nation uh, from this threat. And so I'd like to hear from the two generals in, in terms of if you had to prioritize, say, the top five or top ten points in terms of what we need to do as a nation, uh, what would you, uh, how would you respond to that? Well, I Mr. Chairman, let me begin by thanking uh, De uh, Chief Deputy Ag Aguilar for her testimony. And I, I might add, I don't have a bit of disagreement with anything she said about El Paso as a city or a county. Uh, although I might, might add that I had a meeting personally in a closed room with 100 people from both Juarez and El Paso within the last 18 months. And that entire room, both sides of the border said they feel intimidated. And a senior police official in the city of El Paso in response to a question from a Mexican national said, if these people come across the border, I will not be able to protect you. I was astonished. There were Texas DPS was in the room when we had this seminar to educate me on what was going on. So I do think though that we should accept as a reality, nonpartisan, I'm not running for public office and I'm not associated with any party. I've been working that border for a long time. The rural areas are absolutely threatened, and Dr. Victor's testimony should be given great credence. Uh, now, having said that, number one, if we took the border from one end to the other, the 24 southwest border counties and made a state of them, you'd say a couple of things. Number one, they're 51st in per capita income, 51st in health care. You go on, they're, they're the poorest counties in the United States but they're number one in documented federal crime. And so I would argue this is not the responsibility of border sheriffs. Hudspeth County, 12 deputies, 5,000 square miles, an intimidated population, cartel presence in the county. We can't protect America unless the border patrol and the other parts of the system. You can't just increase manpower in the border patrol, the federal marshal service, DEA, FBI, the court system has to be enhanced also. We've got to get resources adequate to counter this challenge. I think the second aspect of it, not the subject of this hearing, we can't protect America unless we reform immigration on the United States. We've got 10 million people running our agricultural system, meat packing, daycare centers, etc. These humble, hardworking, spiritual people are here making America's economy work. They can't go to the local police and ask for protection because they're here illegally. They can't wire their money home to their mother. We simply must reform and have a guest worker status where these people are protected by OSHA safety standards, minimum wage, et cetera, without which we're not going to affect the border. And then finally, I think we've got to get real assets to the Mexican government. I think I mentioned we've given them 11 helicopters in three years. Uh, thankfully, during the Clinton administration, we got over 250 aircraft to the Colombians who have turned the situation around in a 10-year struggle. Those would be my top three recommendations. And let me say in response to that as well that uh, 
We've been, we've met President Calderon several times, uh, and I, I have tremendous admiration and respect for what he's doing. And I, I agree with you, it's, it's anemic, the uh, funding. The Merida initiative has had some success, but we need to look at post Merida, what are we gonna do? We uh, have been working on a plan to get the Colombian special forces that have been trained by our guys uh, to work with the Mexican military to crack down on these drug cartels in, in Mexico. I think they assimilate better, uh, and I think President Calderon is very interested in that idea. Um, and I think we're going to make some progress on that. My time is somewhat <clears throat> limited. I hope you heard that. We are training the special forces in South America. I hope you heard this, right? I want you guys to pay attention to what they're saying. Aside from the fact that they're saying that they wanted to give some kind of status to these illegal migrants in that area, I wanted you guys to pay attention to how this dovetails it on. Oh, yes, it does. Take a listen. But I have to touch on the uh, Dr. Vickers, you talked about the other than Mexicans. I know that that number, you know, the, the seasonal worker is not the threat here. The threat is the other than Mexican coming in. I think the events of this week demonstrating that an Iranian operative was reaching out to what he thought was a Los Etas drug cartel member to arrange a team of assassins to bring explosive devices across the Mexican border into the United States to take out the Saudi ambassador highlights this threat that we face. Did you hear that? I just want to clarify. Did you hear that? Did you hear that loud and clear, right? I want you guys to listen to this loud and clear. This is from 10 years ago. I wonder if you guys spotted me in the audience. Um, this is very, very important. Because, you know, the whole HSBC thing happened because someone, you know, went to this, these dumb idiots that were doing the audits that were hired to make people fail. So some nice person volunteered their time and said, let me show you how this is done. Oh, whoa, what's that? Oh, oh dear, you're going to look so great. People are going to be so proud of you guys because you're doing such a great job uncovering the money laundering for the cartels through HSBC that Comey is on the board of. I didn't say that. Uh, I mean, the person didn't say that. You know, and when you look at Hezbollah's 1980 fatwa, they say engaging in drug production and trafficking, explicitly stating that making these drugs for Satan, America, and the Jews, if we cannot kill them with guns, we will kill them with drugs. And then in 2008, uh, L Universal reported that the Mexican Sinaloa drug cartel was sending elite assassins to train on weapons and explosives with Islamic radicals in Iran. Now, whether that's, you know, that's a report. Uh, is this happening? What is the Islamic Hezbollah connection to Latin America? We know there is a Tehran-Caracas connection to Venezuela. We know that Hezbollah is very, there's a heavy presence of Hezbollah uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And if I could refer to this, um, here we have the Iranian operative, Mr. Mansour, who thinks he's contracting with these drug cartels who are pictured on the right here with these assault weapons, where these AK-47s. Mm -hmm. This is a threat. And this is one we've been warning about for years. And that's my concern as a former counterterrorism official uh, and as a, a member of this committee 
who is looking at border security issues. This makes the border that much more imperative that we have to get it secure. Mr. Chairman, will you yield on that point? I, I, I want to hear from the witnesses, just for, if that's okay, and I'd be happy to have a, a further discussion. You do understand what's being said here. While we're being distracted with children, right, the real threat is there. This is from 10 years ago. It's from 10 years ago, right, that there was a Caracas connection with Venezuela, all right? This is where you guys need to see just how long they've planned this. While we're distracted with children at the border, because that's how, that's what you can report, right? People need to revisit history. Oh, Pompeo called out Kerry. He's called him out again and again and again. It's not news. So the question you should be asking yourself is why is, why all the media are recycling news? They're all, oh, Joe Biden's going to step down by June. We know he had to finish the 100 days. That's up in just about, what, three days. Can't do it right away because it shows that they waited 100 days. So maybe he'll get sick and step down because we all know what's really going on. So they're distracting you with the children, right? And we're using that to create uh, attention to the border crisis. But no one is talking about the real crisis, the fake passports, the golden passports, and how one person, they only need one person to cross that border, strap themselves with powders, and that's it. You're done. You're simply done. This is how they cause chaos. So both the right and the left media are doing a great disservice because they're keeping you distracted. But I'm not saying that it's not a crisis and what these children are going through is not a big deal. It's a massive deal. It's a big problem. Okay. Big problem. But what you should be asking yourself is why aren't we talking about the things that are most important right now, which is our national security. All right. Not the children. National security. This is what we need to focus on. This is what we need to be paying attention to. Now, I want you to see the response to how we nabbed this person who thought he was working with the with the with the right cartel people and what they said. But I'll, to the two generals, I mean, you're giving a military strategic assessment of the, this threat. Uh, how do you view this connection? I think it highlights even more so that we need to be paying attention. And granted, most of this violence is taking place in Mexico. 40,000 people killed in Mexico. Whereas when I went in there, 6,000 people killed, had the same, I had the same uh, security I had going into Afghanistan. So what, what needs to be done? General Scales, I want to give you the opportunity. Yeah, to, to I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, I'm a soldier, and I wrote this, or we wrote this report from the from a standpoint of, 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 of the military. But what I'd like to do is is cut through the politics for a minute and give you four or five things that need to be done in addition to more funding. Money is important, but other things we've discovered are, are equally important that don't necessarily deal with finances. First of all, we believe that Texas is a template for many reasons that we talk about in the report, particularly the, the aggressive action of the Texas Rangers, many ways that Texans uh, 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 system has proved to be one of the best we've seen. Secondly, we need to improve coordination, communications, intelligence gathering between state, local, and federal. And we need to focus right here 
right there. The tactical side of this battle, whereas we know all wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, or, or, or the southern border of Texas or lost is at the tactical level of war. We don't put the resources at the, at the tactical level, I believe, that we should. So it's not just the money, but it's where you put it. I think we need to do a better job of cross-border, to use my phrase, joint operations with the Mexican military. I understand all of the political problems beginning with the Mexican War in the mid-19th century. I've got it. But in those few instances where the Rangers and the Feds and the locals and the Mexicans operated together on both sides of the border, they effectively shut down drug trafficking for days. That needs to be a template for how to do it. We need to use cost-effective, cheap, off-the-shelf technology to, to, to build, not just build a fence, but to build a fence that's strategic in nature and can be observed. You know, it's an old saying in the military, though, that any obstacle that's not covered by observation or fire is useless, and that's the same thing true here. In the state of Texas, they've taken deer cameras and GPSs and cell phones and put them together in cheap anti-intrusion systems that have worked extraordinarily well. And the final point I'll make is schooling. You know, one thing we learn in the military is the military is a learning institution. And information sharing, teaching and learning between all three levels, state, local, and federal, but particularly local, it's important for us to, to stay ahead of the enemy intellectually, not just physically, because the cartels are a smart, adaptive, flexible, heartless and cruel organization. And if they outthink us as well as outfight us, all the federal money in the world won't make a difference. And it won't, especially when you have people like Kamala Devi Harris, who has tight, very tight connections to cartels from her time as attorney general in California. So money, drugs, power. I don't understand why the media is recycling the news because all this news that you see is old news. We have been seeing this. We know about this. We understand that this has been ongoing. So why is it that it's suddenly new, right? Now, oh, you know, John Kerry, he's a traitor. We know that. He was called out in front of Congress, right? He was called out in front of Congress. Here is um, John Kerry blasting Congress for the Iran letter. Listen to this. My uh, reaction uh, to the letter was utter disbelief. But to write uh, to the leaders in the middle of a negotiation, particularly the leaders that, that they have criticized other people for even engaging with or writing to, to write them and suggest that, uh, uh, that uh, they're going to give a constitutional lesson, which, by the way, was absolutely incorrect, is quite stunning. It's incorrect when it says that Congress could actually modify the terms of an agreement at any time. That's flat wrong. And it purports to tell the world that if you want to have any confidence in your dealings with America, uh, they have to negotiate with 535 members of Congress. Yes, they do, that because they represent us. That is profoundly a bad suggestion to make. What bad suggestion, Carrie? They represent us. And therefore, if anyone wants to negotiate with our nation, that has to do with our 
economy, our security, our health care, they do have to go through Congress because Congress represents us. And people need to remember that. No one makes decisions for us. No one is above the law. And no one tells us, uh, hey, know your place, man, because if you don't like it too bad, like the people of New Hampshire heard. Listen to this. We would say, we would say, Did you hear that? The co-chairman, Ross McLeod, picked the New Hampshire auditor uh, to tell Wyndham residents that it's not up to you to decide if it's something un unacceptable. Deal with it. I think he needs to be reminded the power that the citizens have. Because John Kerry, this, is, this audio is from 2015. John Kerry said that Americans don't have a voice. Congress has no say in anything, right? has no say in anything, in 2015. These are the people, right, that are ruining our nation. Listen to what else he says, because he was appalled that Congress sent a letter to Iran. Like, how dare you tell them that they need to go through Congress? That's not true. It is, because we are in charge of Congress. And if we say so, Congress says so. That's the way it goes. We negotiate our economy. We negotiate our national security. We negotiate our health care. We negotiate our education. I think we all forgot that and have allowed these demagogues, these self-proclaimed kings and queens to put us in our place because we've made so many concessions. Oh, sure, take my privacy. Oh, sure, take my identification. Oh, sure, I prefer to be safe and a prisoner rather than free and the master of my own destiny. Bake, I think. Mr. Secretary, I know this is a well-written speech, but not a speech, you've been at friend. this for this five This is not minutes. a speech. Yeah. This is a statement about I'm the gonna... impact of this irresponsible letter. And you have a and lot of letter does not do have legal yeah. authority. Five I'm sorry. And 26, here, five minutes and 26 seconds later, you finished. I will say that I didn't sign the letter. Um, I'm very disappointed, though, that you've gone back on your statement that any agreement must pass muster with Congress. The way we pass muster here is we vote. And uh, I think all of us are very disappointed with the veto threat and the stiff arming that is taking place. But with that. But, but uh, Senator, let me just say, Mr. Chairman, let me just. Senator Gardner. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You see that? That was Mr. Corker telling him, oh, so now you're saying that we have no say and that you'll veto us if we decide not to go along. This is how it happens. Now, here is a hearing. I want you guys not only to listen, but to watch carefully. Watch carefully. And see what is being said and how it's being said and who's there. Take a listen. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, gentlemen. We certainly appreciate your indulgence. We know it's been a long time. Uh, in the context of these statements is how is, is I'd like to ask my questions. Uh, from 1994, so not too long ago, right? 11, we're talking about 11, 15-year context of this deal for the most, for the most uh, strict portions of it. So from 1994, the entire world will be safer as we slow the spread of nuclear weapons is one statement. And also the United States and international inspectors will carefully monitor North Korea to make sure it keeps its commitments. And we all know that's, of course, uh, quotes from President Clinton that those None of that happened. I mean, North Korea is what it is, and we are where we are. Within that context, Secretary Kerry, uh, reading your quote uh, recently with a reporter from Al Arabiya, I don't know how to interpret at this point in time except to take it at face value in relation to chance of death to America, death to Israel. We're going to continue our, our policy. And then it's very troubling it's very disturbing, it's very troubling, and we'll have to wait and see. What will we have to wait and see, Secretary Kerry? And before you answer, 1979, 52 U.S. hostages, 444 days. 1983, the U.S. Marine barracks, 241 Americans killed. 1992, the Israeli embassy in Argentina bombed. 2011, the attempted assassination of the Saudi ambassador in D.C., the killings and maimings of hundreds in Iraq and Afghanistan, not to mention support of the Saad, Hezbollah, Hamas, and activities in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. What will we have to wait and see? What, what was your... What was to see the implementation of the plan, Congressman. No, you, look, you and I can have a speech off if you want. I don't want to have a speech yes. off. No, I no, want no, to understand but I'm your comments. We could have a, a, you know, we could have a competition for who is angrier about some of the things Iran has done historically. We understand they've killed Americans. We understand what they did, Kobar Tarras. We understand all of this. But they were marching towards a nuclear Mr. weapon. Mr. Secretary, no, 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 you no, must no. understand. Me, I me, understand. Congressman, you must understand answer. the American people see Iran as like a crocodile or a shark that does what it does. And we're saying, well, we're going to give the crocodile or the shark a few more teeth and let's see if it does something That's different. That's just not accurate. That's not but that's, but that's what we see. Let me, we have left in let me say this, too. You have said that we don't have a better option. Right. People are saying, well, you haven't provided a better option. Congressman, we but have First of all, Mr. Secretary, with all due respect, it is not Congress's job. This is the administration. And if you would use the treaty process as provided by the Constitution, maybe we wouldn't be in this situation. Furthermore, you know, you say, well, this is the only deal we can get. That no. there's no better deal. Congress has a long history of instituting better deals. Example are 200 treaties, including 80 multilateral accords modified by Congress, including the Arms and uh, Control Agreement, SALT II, and the Threshold Test Ban Treaty that failed to reach a vote and were modified. So there is a history for that of getting a better deal. And if the Ayatollah doesn't like it and doesn't want to negotiate it, oh, boo-hoo. We're, we're here for America. We stand for America. You represent America. With that having been said, you know, it's a, in another interview, if you don't get a majority in Congress to support this deal, doesn't that undermine the deal? And your statement, it's abbreviated, they don't care over there. And I'm assuming you mean Iraq, as long as the deal is implemented. And that's what we care about, that this deal being impl implemented. So do you care more about this deal or the UN's approval or American sovereignty? and the approval of the American people through their duly elected representatives, Mr. Secretary. Congressman, I don't need any lessons from you about who I represent. 
I've represented and fought for our country since I was out of college. And God so, bless you for your so service. Don't give me sir. any lessons about that, okay? Now, let me just make it crystal clear to you. This is America's interest because America is the principal guarantor of security in the region, and particularly with respect to some of our closest friends. Now, we believe that Iran was marching towards a weapon or the capacity to have a weapon, and we've rolled that back. Congress. Okay, that's your opinion. That's I indisputable. That's no, Let me ask you this. Let me fact. ask you this, Mr. Secretary. That's a fact. Is it possible that Iran will acquire Russian air defense missiles in relation to the arms embargo lifting to protect nuclear sites? Possible or not possible? Say that again. Is it possible that Iran will acquire Russian air defense missiles to protect nuclear sites? Uh, those are not in the agreement. They have A300s. That in the relation to the arms embargo lifting? No, they're not banned by the arms embargo. They're outside of it. We're going to uh, Mr. Brandon Boyle of Pennsylvania. And he didn't like that heat. See, this has been going on for a very long time. Let's revisit our president and what he had to say about John Kerry. Because he should be prosecuted. And that's a fact. He should definitely be prosecuted. Take a listen to what our president had said, because it's quite important to revisit history sometimes because we forget. Well, they were threatening, and we have information. We have information that uh, you don't want to know about. They were very threatening, and uh, we just want to have, uh, we have to have great security for this country and for a lot of other places. Risk of military confrontation, sir. I guess you could say that always, right? Isn't it? I mean, you know, always. I don't want to say no, but hopefully that won't happen. Uh, we have one of the most powerful ships in the world that's loaded up, and we don't want to have to do anything. What I'd like to see with Iran, I'd like to see them call me. You know, John Kerry speaks to them a lot. John Kerry tells them not to call. That's a violation of the Logan Act. And frankly, he should be prosecuted on that. But my people don't want to do anything that's only the Democrats do that kind of stuff. You know, if it were the opposite way, they'd prosecute him under the Logan Act. But John Kerry violated the Logan Act. He's talking to Iran and has been, has many meetings and many phone calls, and he's telling them what to do. That is a total violation of the Logan Act, because what they should be doing is their economy is a mess ever since I took away the Iran deal. They have inflation that's the highest number I've ever heard. They're having riots every weekend and during the week even. And what they should be doing is calling me up, sitting down. We can make a deal, a fair deal. We just don't want them to have nuclear weapons. Not too much to ask. And we would help put them back into great shape. They're in bad shape right now. I look forward to the, where we can actually help Iran. We're not looking to hurt Iran. I want them to be strong and great and have a great economy. But they're listening to John Kerry who's violated a very important element of what he's supposed to be doing. He violated the Logan Act, plain and simple. He shouldn't be doing that. We got pictures. But they should call, and if they do, we're open to talk to them. We have no secrets, and they can be very, very strong financially. They have great potential, very much like North Korea. North Korea has tremendous potential economically, and I don't think he's going to blow that. I don't think so. So we got pictures of John Kerry meeting with Iranian officials, uh, you know, in France uh, over this time. 
So John Kerry is back in the news now, and everyone's talking about how Pompeo uh, has um, pretty much called him out when he's done it before. He's been called out for years, and no one does anything. So any of your congressmen or senators that have been there since 2015, 2016, don't deserve to be reelected unless they've actually stood for something. That's very, very important. Very important. So um, uh, in, in other news, John Kerry is in China during U.S. delegations uh, with the, the Taiwan visit, which is quite interesting because this is coming from, you know, Chinese news themselves. I want you guys to see it just in case this video disappears. We can archive it. Here we go. Let's get this going. So that way you can see who, what, when, where. Oops. There we go. All right. Here's John Kerry. <laughs> and this is... Staying on the U.S. visit as it gets underway, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is in China for three days of talks on climate change. Kerry arrived in Shanghai on Wednesday, the same day that former Senator Chris Dodd landed in Taiwan. President Tsai Ing-wen appeared to allude to Kerry when receiving Dodd on Thursday. The Biden administration is actively working with the international community on the issue of climate change. Taiwan is committed to carbon reduction and developing green energy. I believe this is a key area in which we can cooperate over the long term. Dodd has come as a special envoy for Biden. What I said earlier about him coming with a message for Tsai, that is extremely plausible. John Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate change affairs, went to Shanghai. He won't be meeting Xi Jinping as he's not going to Beijing, and afterward he's going to Seoul. This means China is simply one stop on an itinerary. An analyst points out that Kerry is an official presidential envoy, while Dodd is a confidant to the U.S. president with no official capacity. The two are in Shanghai and Taipei, respectively, for roughly the same amount of time. The analyst says their arrival shows the careful calculus of the Biden administration as it weighs its Indo-Pacific strategy. And so what you're going to hear about next is that um, Carrie's going to be hopping over to New Zealand and then from New Zealand somewhere else. And that's why on May 4th, we're going to have these discussions because it's about time we let some cats out of her bag. Right. Uh, so uh, a lot of uh, in the next hour, we're going to be talking a little bit about cryptocurrency. A lot of people are salty because they invested in XRP. But I have talked about it in 2018, 2019, 2020 as to how this is a secret, but not so much of a secret, right? The XDR currency is the currency of debt that the IMF runs. <laughs> XRP is their digital. And I'm going to show you that because a lot of people, you know, think they're very well versed. But you have to understand, huh, just like Tor Tor, the deep state has many, many onions of layers, layers like onions. So you're gonna see that, how it comes down to it. Now, continuing on with this uh, whole Iran thing, uh, there was uh, a report yesterday on Newsmax uh, about Iran. And I want you guys to um, listen to it. It's quite interesting. Actually, very interesting. 
Here we go. Let's play this. This domestic nightmare to foreign policy here for just a second. We are quickly approaching Joe Biden's 100th day in office, and our adversaries like Iran and China are becoming ever bolder, and we keep helping them. Biden revoking the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, of course, forced Canada to go to China to meet their energy needs. That's money to China. Biden also re-entered into the Paris Climate Accords, another move that benefits China. And then we have this. Many other examples, by the way, but check this out. A bombshell of sorts discovered in the New York Times today. The Times buried this detail, 21 paragraphs, into a story about Javad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister. Quote, former Secretary of State John Kerry informed him that Israel had attacked Iranian interests in Syria at least 200 times. I'm going to let you digest this for a second. Think about it. If true, that means the Secretary of State John Kerry under Obama is trying to kiss up to the Iranians, an evil regime, and get the Iran nuclear deal done, which would be a huge accomplishment for him and a very selfish move. Kerry sells out one of America's greatest allies to the largest state sponsor of terror in the world, selling out Israel to Iran to try and get this stupid deal done that we all know is horrible. Kerry, for his part, denied the allegation tonight with this tweet. Hopefully we're going to learn more about this in the coming days. But this is a really big story, especially because he's in this current administration. To break this down further, this allegation, we spoke with former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley earlier. Ambassador Haley, thank you so much for taking the time. It's good to see you. I want to start with a pretty troubling story about John Kerry from back when he was Secretary of State. The New York Times actually buried a detail on him in a story about Iran's foreign minister. I know, Quote, former Secretary of State John Kerry informed him that Israel had attacked Iranian interests in Syria at least 200 times. This is back when they were trying to get the Iran nuclear deal, of course. You tweeted today, this is disgusting on many levels. Biden and Kerry have to answer for why Kerry would be tipping off Iran, the number one sponsor of terror, while stabbing one of our greatest partners, Israel, in the back. This is a really big story. What exactly do you think should happen here? I mean, Rob, this is truly horrifying. I mean, the idea that Kerry would do this is appalling in its own right. But Biden and Kerry have to answer for this. He should not be sitting on the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't be involved with any of our foreign policy if this is what he does. And then the worst part is to stab our ally Israel in the back. Um, and take up for Iran, who's the largest state sponsor of terrorism. It just it's ludicrous. I mean, we, we talk about John Kerry a lot. I mean, we, we poke fun at him a lot because he gives us so much ammo. I mean, he really is foolish. I mean, to to think that you're going to get anywhere by throwing Iran some nuggets that they shouldn't have. Uh, I mean, how foolish is he and this administration on the threat of Iran? You know, it goes back to Obama. This is Obama 2.0. Obama loved Iran. I mean, and he took it to Israel every chance he got and even humiliated them right until the very end. And, you know, now we're watching basically Biden's falling all over himself to do business with Iran again, which is just everyone around the world is not going to understand why Biden is doing this. But really to do this to our friend Israel is just disgusting. It is unbelievable. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, The administration, the Biden administration last week saying it's willing to lift sanctions on Iran. This was a State Department spokesman, Ned Price, on Friday. There are sanctions that that are uh, inconsistent with the JCPOA. Uh, And as we have said, if Iran 
resumes its compliance with the nuclear deal, meaning that if Iran once again becomes subject to most of the most stringent verification and monitoring regime ever negotiated, we would be prepared uh, to lift those sanctions. Is there, is there any way that they can actually trust Iran? Is there any way that you can watch over them enough to actually trust them to lift the sanctions? Oh, I actually, I went for President Trump. I went to the um, IAEA that monitors Iran and really did some questions before we got out of the deal. And the one thing I found out is, number one, they were violating multiple UN resolutions. They were on top of that. They weren't allowing any of the facilities to be checked for 45 days. They weren't allowing any of the research institutions um, or military installations to be um, looked at. And so it was really, when you look at what they were doing already, they were lying and they were cheating against America, and then they took all our money. The idea that Biden wants to go get back in this deal, it makes us look so weak around the world that he's just trying to appease them. It doesn't make sense, and I think this is gonna backfire. It's, it's, so, it's so incredibly foolish. Again, it makes no sense to me. Um, turning to China now for a second, another big problem. The Chinese commissioned 60,000 tons worth of major vessels earlier this month including a new nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. What are your concerns with China? What should the Biden administration be thinking right now? China's our number one um, threat around the world. And the idea that they are continuing, they have the largest naval fleet in the world, they have more air defense system missiles than we have, and, and Biden's going and cutting defense spending. I mean, I think that China sees that we're distracted. I think they're making their moves. We saw that during COVID. Um, and I think they're going to continue to do that. And the one thing that we have to quit thinking is if we're nice to them, they're going to want to be like us. They don't want to be like us. They are communists. They want to be communists. And they're out to be the superpower of the world. It's the reason why I think we should boycott the Olympics. I mean, mm. if you look at the fact that China is a million Muslim Uyghurs, being in concentration camps, making them change their name, change their religion, making them drink and go against their religion, all of these horrific things, slave labor, um, the fact that they're doing that and no one's calling them out on it. And then you go and you look at President Xi and he's basically commissioned that says any company that does business with the Chinese military, with, with China, has to cooperate with the Chinese military. I mean, think about our tech, think about data that all of right. our tech companies have and now that the Chinese military have it as well. That's something else. Uh, you're set to host the Iowa GOP's annual Lincoln Dinner. You're going to help uh, fundraise for Republican candidates. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and the work you're doing, I guess, for 2022. Well, you know, basically, um, prior to November, I was campaigning there a good bit. We we worked for Joni Ernst. We got flipped two House seats um, with Ashley Henson and Marionette Miller-Meeks. And so going back to Iowa, we're working on defending those two seats again. Um, Chuck Grassley's up. The governor, Kim Reynolds, is up. Yeah. And so it's, you know, another important year in Iowa, and, and I appreciate the opportunity of, of going and helping them out again. I want to talk about 2024 for a second. You've indicated potentially running. You say you're not running for president if Donald Trump runs for president. Um, give us an indication where your head's at on all this. Well, I, I think that 2024 is a long ways away and anyone talks a bit foolish. I think that our focus should be on 2022, winning the House back, winning the Senate back. I don't think I need to make a decision on 2024 yet. Um, and, and so I'm going to continue to do everything I can. In terms of the president, we had a great working relationship. Um, we got a lot done in foreign policy. I'm proud of all of the work um, that the administration did. And out of respect, I would never 
do anything to go against him. He knows that I would have a conversation with him and talk to him about it. Should we decide we want to pursue it? But um, no, I mean, I have a great respect for him and I would never consider running against him. Okay. Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador. Thank you so much for the time. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on. Bye. Um, Yeah, I, I don't like rhinos at all. So let's take a break, get those coffee cups filled. And here's a soft, smooth jazz. (laughs) It's not smooth jazz. Here's another favorite of mine. I'm going to be showing you the video too. So for that reason, I'm pretty sure YouTube's going to knock me off. So um, I will see you guys right after this short video. Oops. I'm praying that the world changes soon Can't get a doobie on a plane But there's Uzis in our schools Every dude who touched a boob or a booty Getting me too What you expect from the kids who went to Hooters after school We're all triggered and defensive We're all racist and we're sexist We all grew up watching South Park How are we offended? Now being fat is beautiful Name a thing that you can do Jumping jacks, run a mile, live past 42 Man, it used to be cooler to slip a bird to the system And now it's trendy to be triggered and pretend you're a victim It's my race, it's my weight It's because I'm a Christian I hate the internet and anyone who has an opinion and everybody angry if you say white okay fine pass me the brush and i'll paint my face to the shades right let's talk about abortion sorry tell me how this works bacteria is life on mars but a heartbeat isn't life on earth weird y'all so stupid why are y'all so stupid get better problems i swear to god that y'all want y'all so dumb people so stupid people so dumb people so boo wah 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 I'm a hater because I can't relate to gay pride. Call me homophobic because I don't want to date guys. K tight. I, for one, I'm not surprised the world declined along the way. Give trophies to children for losing just because they decide to play. We exercise our right to vote and hate the politicians. Hey, this is a democracy. It's partly your decision. Hey, this is weird. Feels like this is a different year. If I identify as a female, then when my balls and penis disappear, children want a gender switch and hating men is feminist. Depression and anxiety are trendy. We're too sensitive. Invented 80 genders. Mad the world is not accepting it. Then gave them more attention than normal women and men can get. What a contradiction. Being human is so tragic. Focus on minorities, ignoring all the masses. Hallelujah, everyone. Activism saved the planet. No more plastic straws and paper, just paper straws wrapped in plastic. Congratulations. Y'all so stupid. Why are y'all so stupid? Get better problems. I swear to God that y'all want them. Y'all so dumb. People so stupid. People so dumb. People so boo-hoo. Wah, wah, wah. Get better issues, we're gonna run out of issues, it's so dumb. Look, I get it. It's like the world is going crazy. Seems like a school shooting happens almost daily. The racism, rape culture, hatred that we're facing is way too ingrained for our hashtags to change it. We've become so lazy and complacent, afraid of our generation. We think activism's Instagramming memes and complaining it's a problem when there's actually actions you could be taking, but you're triggered, so you just cry like a baby. Y'all so stupid, why are y'all so stupid? Get better problems, I swear to God that y'all want them, y'all so dumb. People so stupid, people so dumb, people so boo-hoo-wah-wah-wah. Get better issues, we're gonna run out of issues, it's so dumb. That's a bomb diggity video, right? (laughs) Like, you know, he's right. It's like people think activism is making memes. Like everyone was waiting for all these great meme makers. 
Like that was going to change the world, right? It wasn't. But what you guys are doing is changing the world. I got notice that Montana, the group that is on Telegram, got together and boy, they got themselves done. They got it done. I just can't believe it. You know, they're so incredible. They got a bill, a non-discriminatory bill passed. So those that are not vaccinated don't get discriminated against. They got that done. That's how you make change. Congratulations, Montana. That's what's up. Now, all of them are waiting to make sure that their governors or someone else doesn't overturn the legislation that just was passed. So Montana, there you go. That's how things are done. You don't need memes. You need to take action. You need to be willing to put in that time in your local community. So way to go, Montana. See, this is you guys, all of you. I mean, a lot of people are like, Tori, you run all these. I had a, con had a couple conversations today. Some were hilarious. Some were like, what is really going on here? And others were like, no. Uh, you know, someone was like, you made all these groups. I didn't do anything, right? Like I said, at some point, people are going to totally forget about me in a few years because you guys are running the show. You guys are the movement. You were always the plan. And you know, these rooms for every state have gotten together doing things. And then there's offshoots too. And then, you know, obviously there's the main chat. You guys run that. I love it. I love it. That is exactly what you are doing is exactly what every American should do. We're all leaders. We don't need anybody to follow. And that's the problem. We've been taught all this time to look up to someone to come and save us. When you pray to God, he doesn't just hand it to you. He gives you a, a, the tools to do it or gives you the circumstances to push you to do it. And that's what it is. You guys are taking the lead here. You guys are the new leaders. And I agree with, um, there was one song that he had where it's like, uh, you know, what do you mean by leaving a better planet, uh, a better planet for our kids? Why not leave kids, better kids for our planet was one of the, the, the lyrics he spit out. And I was like, that's it. You guys are going to be doing that. You guys are going to be leaving better kids for this planet per se. That is, yeah, that's in clown world. That's it. So it is, it really, really important that people understand just just how your local community, when you take hold of that, how you can just branch it out and take your power back. Nobody, nobody has more power than you. Nobody. And, uh, you know, I am so proud of every single one of you, every single one of you for this. Now, obviously, we have uh, the the... Uh, left pushing on these Second Amendment rights, right? Because they fear, they're, right now, as you can see, your government fears you. They fear you, and it's important. They fear you like none, like no other. They fear you. And this is why they want to take your rights away. See, in our our, fond, our founding fathers knew this was going to happen. Like I said before, the ink was dry. It blew my mind how they were already organizing how to take this down and mold it the, the way they wanted to. And it's, they fear you like no other. 
And that is exactly how it should be. Your government serves you. It's not the other way around. You know, Gavin Newsom got a taste of that because it made the ballot. Even though he tried to scrutinize in Arizona, they're going berserk. They don't want an audit because it undermines the results. I don't see how that happens. Like I said last night, maybe we should tell the IRS, stop auditing us. You're undermining our filings. <laughs> it's like, how the heck does an audit undermine any results? Seriously. So a lot of people are at this point where they don't know what to do. Do we fight in the courts that are fixed? Do we, what do we do? And uh, as I've been saying for a while, it's up to you. You, you need to get in there and get it done. So I am so excited to see all of you. I mean, you know, the Tory says chat was created in 2019, right? And I kind of just gave the reins to other people. I created that in 2019. I created a couple of them. And it, it, I've been on Telegram for over two years, okay? And so, you know, you guys have taken and run with it and created your own voices to be. I am so proud of each and every one of you. The California, every single state has done an incredible job. And you are being heard. You know, I was shocked to see how people are standing, um, you know, for this bioweapons lab by saying, well, we spent a lot of money. Nobody gives a shit. It's our money, right? And if we want to eat that cost, right, we get to do that. Because after what happened in Wuhan, we should be thinking a little bit more carefully of where we put these kind of diseases. The reason they put Plum Island there to test animals is so that it doesn't escape. So now we have it, you know, in the middle of our food supply because, oh, yeah, we checked it. It's going to be super good. Oh, we double checked it. We put thicker concrete walls. And yeah, because you're going to see a virus walk out. It's going to set an alarm off or tell you, hey, I'm I'm exiting right now. And this double, you know, double thick wall is the prop. So dumb. So crazy to see them talk about money. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be cussing. This is Holy Week. It's Holy Tuesday today. <laughs> so we've got so much going on. I mean, overseas, they're just losing their minds completely. Um, there are so many weird reports that are coming out. But you know what's funny? You know, with, the, with all these electoral, you know, changes, right? California. Illinois, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia lost a house seat based on the um, census because our population has decreased. Of course, of course it has. We had a lot of abortions going on. We also had a lot of infertility. Thanks, pharma. But the states that actually gained house seats, right, one electoral vote is Texas that gained two of them bigger population in Texas, Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon. Incredible, isn't it? That is incredible that they won those seats. And think that all the states that voted for Biden, and he supposedly won, lost three House seats in total. That's a very big deal. Five states, actually, sorry, five states um, 
uh, and all together that voted for Biden lost presentation. Two states that voted for him uh, gained representation, gained a seat. It's, it's pretty crazy because this census showed that the population has actually gone down. And, and that's, that's a pretty big deal. Another pretty big deal is I remember a long, long time ago, I had put out a video showing that live on TV, live on TV, they were editing some chick's pimple on CNN, right? And so I was looking to find evidence of them live editing things. You want to see this? Now you could tell me if it's live or not. I just, I want to show this to you because, um, and for those on the podcast, I will describe this for you. So here you see Scarlett Johansson. She's being interviewed. Now, for those of you watching, I want you to pay attention to the woman in the black dress behind her. Just watch. You look beautiful. Tell me what you're wearing tonight. Valentino. As you see, the woman with the black dress never comes out on the other end. Where'd she go? Do you see that? So she's walking right behind Scarlett Johansson, but she never comes out on the other end. She completely disappears as if she was edited out. Her shadow's there and it's gone. So, I mean, what do you guys make of that? Let me, let me, let me um, play that for you again because that was bizarre. Here she is, live. Oh, she's wearing Valentino. So nice. Look at that lady. She disappears behind Scarlett. Where is she going? Where'd she go? Can you see that? She's just gone. Her shadow's there. And then gone. She was edited out of the footage. Isn't that weird? See, there's a lot of weird things going on in society that many people just don't understand. Lots of weird things. See, if you wouldn't have seen that, you'd be like, oh, what? They edit everything. That was, that was live. They're editing things live. So nothing you see is true. This is why I go back to last year where I told you the only thing you need to do is trust your gut and what it tells you. Because almost everything you see, you're watching a movie. You're watching things that don't exist. Your reality is not what you think. You need to look past it. You need to look way past it. Because a lot of people seem to believe that uh, they know exactly what is happening. Well, let's put it this way. We talked about volcanoes, right? A lot. And, you know, remember, I did a lot of shows telling you about volcanoes and how they were the excuse that were used for um, climate change, right? Suzuki came out and everyone started saying, oh my gosh, my fridge makes CFCs. Maybe... <clears throat> We should take care of refrigerators. Oh my gosh, we need to not have Aquanet anymore. There's global warming. There's like so much carbon when carbon is the lowest it's been in a very, very long time. So what's really, really bizarre is that, um, you know, now I told you that there's a lot of volcanoes underwater, above water. The underwater one is the scariest one. 
And so I told you this, I think it was like two years ago that I did my whole volcano episode, right? About, you know, climate change and this. This is how they're going to use the fear. This is how they're going to do it. And then they're going to tell you that because everyone stopped using hairspray, it healed the hole in the ozone when it's already been proven by the science that the volcanoes caused that ozone hole. I went through the whole thing in that episode. So I know that there's someone that transcribes my uh, my shows on a site called torysaid.com. You can go in there and plug in volcano or Aquanet or whatever, and you'll find it. Um, this is why I say this bioweapons lab is a big problem. That's where I'm going to leave it. Big problem. So uh, again, now we're seeing volcanoes everywhere erupting. We saw a tsunami hit up against Greenland because of this volcanic explosion that those of you that are watching are seeing it live erupting in Iceland right now. So when we think, how are they going to scare us into climate change, right? This is it. Holes in the ozone. Maybe added a few pictures of people running at the beach and putting in blisters of how the sun has killed them all. And you all need to put the lotion on like a good we love you. Put the lotion on, right? Protect yourself. Put the lotion in the basket. That is how they lock you down. That is how they take control. This is how they scare you into this. I, two years ago, explained the hoax. And now here we go. It's coming. Then this is why Carrie is East Asia hopping because the closest way to go to Ross Island is from Asia, right? You go there, then South Korea, then, you know, you're going to go over to New Zealand and hop, you know, a globetrotter, right? Over. That's, that's it. Because the Ross Island part is the problem. This is why we're going to talk about this. Because when I wrote that article about the volcano, on how people were told that they're going to burn alive if they get the vaccine, they're not going to be evacuated, and they're not going into the shelters with no vaccine. This is how they scare you into doing things. Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So this is how they harness this. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. 100%. And so all you have to do is put the lotion on your skin and put it in the basket like they tell you, and you're going to be A-okay. Put your head down. A-okay. So um, funny thing. Uh, so, you know, every time in the morning that I drive Phoebe to school, I go by the Brown Stadium, right? And I see all these tents and military and whatnot. So when I got back home today, I um, asked the police officers that guard my building, hey, oh, what's going on over at the Brown Stadium? Like, you know, oh, yeah, it's the NFL draft. I was like, oh, interesting. And they have all these white tents out there. He's like, yeah, it's a big event. And I was like, so why is the National Guard there? Oh, for protection. I was like, that's funny. The National Guard protects the NFL. They get paid with tax dollars. They protect the NFL, but they're not protecting people conducting an audit. What? What? Excuse me? I'm sorry. I'm a little bit confused. Did the Ohio did the state of Ohio give National Guard to protect the NFL players during their draft and all this, you know, self, you know, you know, appeasement. But Ducey's not giving any protection to the Patriots that are 
you know, looking over um, to audit the election. Sounds sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? That sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? Now, volcanoes, since you're watching it, are going to be something that we're all going to be watching out for. Tons of earthquakes, tons of volcanoes. It's the underwater ones that you have to be careful of. Those are the really, 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 really scary ones. And for those of you that fear what is to come, I mean, a lot of people fear things, but you should have no fear. Uh, make fear your bitch. I like to say that. <laughs> I say that a lot. Yet I'm the one that cries every now and then. You have to be centered, know thyself, and trust your gut. Because fear is the opposite of faith. So um, that's very important. Now, I have a lot of episodes. I even wrote um, an article. I think it's with Big League. I think I've mirrored it onto the ToriSays.com site about the IMF. Now, I know the IMF very, very well, very intimately, too. So I, you know, put out a comment yesterday about XRP. And there's a lot of people that are salty about it because they obviously know best. But the deep state doesn't make things evident to people. Definitely doesn't. So uh, in the group, I actually shared um, through my broadcast channel, which is the only one that I command by myself, right, is broadcast channel is an article by ABM, uh, by AMB Crypto and that are talking about the fates of Ripple, the IMF, and central banks and how they're intertwined. What I need people to understand is, is that they want a digital currency, okay? So this hype with Bitcoin is to get everyone on the bandwagon and make you rich and then make you really poor quick, okay? And so they wanted... Uh, everyone to get onto this digital currency. The XRP actually aligns with the XDR that the IMF has. It was always their plan, always something they've been doing. So I'm going to show you this because this this article is quite fascinating uh, in how in depth it is and how um, it's really good actually. So because not everybody is watching and they're listening. I want you guys to understand what it's stating. It says the cryptos just got real. The idea of central bank digital currency a couple months ago felt like a distant dream, but now it's more real as countries are now rushing to create a digitized version of their national fiat currency. Remember Nancy Pelosi with the CARES Act where they tried to push digital credits for people uh, instead of unemployment? Do you remember that where everyone would get a card with these credits? Did you guys already forget about that? Right? This is this is how they work. They're baiting you. So it uh, goes on to say, uh, the market has become highly diverse too. We've come a long way from Bitcoin to a plethora of options that Satoshi's creation enabled. We have learned about digital currencies, challenge the traditional definition of money, the role of central banks, and the financial intermediation model. We are talking CBDCs now. Most central banks today are either actively engaged in researching about CBDCs or are actively pursuing development. 
So what is a CBDC exactly? Despite a dozen reports published, there's no set consensus on its definition yet. In short, a CBDC is a digital form of fiat money that is centralized control. And while CBDCs were on everyone's mind for a while, it was Facebook's Libra announcement that threw a spanner in the bolstering of its work. Expanding the scope of CBDC, one of the value uh, propositions of it, though not explicitly mentioned, is the cross-border angle. And as proposals regarding the same become more concrete, especially with a digital form of cash, the ease of its circulation will dramatically increase. This dimension is what needs exploration. First up, the Chinese CBDC christened DCEP. Now, um, I have talked about money a lot years ago um, on air. I have expressed to you how there was a meeting uh, talking about a synthetic homogenous currency. There was a meeting within the United States with all these bankers, including the Federal Reserve, where they talked about this. But, you know, everyone follows a lot of people, right? And they just invest because so-and-so said so, right? Now listen to the Chinese expedition, right? This article is pretty good. Long before the Bank of England released a working paper on CBDCs, it was China that began working on it. Since 2014, yes, guys, that's how far back. Precisely since 2014. It isn't surprising that China was not happy with the U.S. dollar's role as a global reserve currency. In a bid to extend its reach, China expanded cross-border trade RMB settlement project, focusing initially on the Hong Kong market in 2009. Yes, that far back. Six years later, the renminbi, the RMBs, their money, received the status of reserve currency from the IMF. So the IMF was like, all right, fine, China, we'll put you up there. So the RMB was added to the IMF's of special drawing rights basket later in 2016. Special drawing rights of, or SDR, is, this is why it's XDR, right, is essentially an international reserve asset created by the IMF in 1969 to supplement its member country's official reserves. This was an important milestone in the integration of the Chinese economy into the global financial system. Wanna guess who brought that home? Well, you're going to have to wait till I actually can get this article. I don't feel that tired today, but I am tied up. I'm actually going to go see someone about that. Um, but I have that too. If you want to find out who helped do this in 2016. In fact, just so you know, it even surpassed the U.S. position itself as the world's largest goods trader in 2014, a title that the U.S. has held for decades. The rise of China in the global economy is nothing short of remarkable. Despite the fact that the U.S. dollar remained a dominant currency, China's esoteric experiments with digitizing its national currency are another step towards replacing traditional currencies, of course, right? So the DCEP is yet another revolution by the Chinese in their attempt to achieve global dominance as the world grappled with COVID-19 fallout. Dubbed digital electric payment, China's CBDC is pegged one-to-one -one with its fiat currency. So your digi 
digi Chinese money is equal to one Chinese money. Exactly the same. There's no difference. What appears to be surface level and general view of the CBDC will take effect in and around home jurisdiction in the long run. It is believed that the DCEP will challenge the highly inefficient traditional cross-border remittance sector by channeling faster and frictionless payments. Alas, there can be no end, all answer to the many questions posed by the cross-border remittance sectors without addressing the literal giant in the room, Ripple. So just so that you understand, this is how it happens. This is how you move things along. All, all is moving to digital. They've already decided. This is why you have wrapped dollar coins. This is why they're pushing dollar coins. They've, and while everyone's telling you about blockchain currency and digital shit, you need to shake them and say, thanks a lot for your stupid hopium on the Jasara shit because they all fucked it up. Just saying. So moving along, right? Moving along with this, I want you guys to know Trouble Times Ripple, the San Francisco-based firm Ripple, has been enjoying a good amount of monopoly, at least in the DLT-based remittance sector. It has expanded to multiple corridors and has seen active volumes of all of these. However, CBDCs emerge in different parts of the world, with one of its main value propositions being disrupting the legacy cross-border remittance sector, it would make Ripple's tech largely redundant as banks will always go for the option that has already been approved by the government. Further, let's not forget that the blockchain company is already facing an ongoing lawsuit. Did you guys know that? A bank-issued digital asset can only if really efficiently settle between the two banks who issued it. Then, two scenarios can play out. Scenario one, all the banks around the world put aside competitive and geopolitical differences, adopt the same digital asset and agree on its rules, and harmoniously govern the usage. That's a fat chance, they say. The result would be even more fragmented currency landscape than what we have today. So what they are saying, just so I can make this a little bit easier, right, is that there will be one digital global currency. What does that sound like? Oh, shit. Kind of sounds like the financial reset. Kind of sounds like Agenda 20, 20, Agenda 20, 30. Sounds like all of that. Wait, it gets better. For those of you that didn't read the article, I'm reading it for you. XRP's own status is clear as mud. Unlike Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are commodities, the status of XRP is unclear. The long XRP commodity security debate is yet to see the light of day at the end of the tunnel. Despite this, what has caught the attention of many was XRP being labeled as supranational currency in an official document that discussed digital fiat currency. What's even more baffling was that Bitcoin was just labeled as cryptocurrency. Are you paying attention now? So a digital fiat currency is legal tender issued by the central bank. Sovereign denomination, monetary base, universal and interoperable, instant settlement, true to the three tests of currency, common unit of account, store value, and medium exchange. Digital fiat currency is not. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain technology enabling Bitcoin, distributed ledger, 
for blockchain, supranational currency, Ripple XRP, initial coin offerings. So all of these are not digital fiat currencies, but XRP is considered. So what's the tie-up with all of this, right? What is the tie-up with this? This is where the IMF comes in. Theories claiming the IMF wants to tie the SDR, where XDR, SDR, whatever, to XRP for settlements makes makes sense for some, but it's far fetched. However, even if we were assumed to assume otherwise, this would mean a financial system in which the IMF, Ripple, and the central banks are all intertwined. In that case, XRP could be used as a bankor or a supranational currency, supranational, above national currency. You understand that? So for all of you out there that were, you know, saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, I suggest you read the article that I shared because that's really important. Because they, and this is from 2020, so it's not like right now, right? It's not right now, okay? So XRP is kind of like what the Chinese did, but for debt. They want to identify the SDR with XRP. So that's what you need to understand. So if you have a bunch of XRP, that's actually debt, and that can actually be devalued too. Kind of like the way China had their digital coin, and then they changed it to be just one per one. So that's... um. That's pretty interesting. So for those of you that got early on XRP, that's great. Um, I mean, you know, you do you. I'm not telling you what to do. Don't take my word for it. I'm telling you, study to see what's out there. And that's it. That's all I have to say on that matter. Uh, because this is something that was, you know, put out, look, 2020, 11 months ago. And nobody paid attention to it because, you know, if you're into cryptos, you're following people that are making a shit ton of money off of Bitcoin or people that, you know, like Cernovich that are telling you to buy more because you're making them richer, by the way. But, you know, you need to understand. Ah, there we go. Someone actually said it. It's like the dot com boom of 1999. So uh, this is something that you need to, um, you know, think of. I've dropped the article in my um in in my telegram group uh it's uh it's pretty much telling you what's going on and we saw that people are trying to do this they're trying to um sequester cryptocurrency so they can have more control right and that's normal because that's what governments like to do now you're not supposed to be listening that's why so <laughs> so Speaking of money, since they're trying to change our currency, <laughs> they're trying to change our currency, sorry. <clears throat> Let's see how they're trying to change our history and our future. Not just by money, because we saw that they attempted to do it while President Trump was in office by creating digital credits that people get credits now, right? Um, this is, you know, we're not going to avoid a digital currency. Don't get me wrong but it has to be the right one. It has to be the right one. So anyone that bought XRP at 23 cents, shit, you're making a shit ton of money. I'm totally jealous. Um, but <laughs> but I just wanted to tell you, you should keep your eye on it because if you have crypto investments, you should keep an eye on it because it's highly volatile. It's like people that were investing in dot-coms that went bust, but yet there were a lot of them that stayed 
sound, right? Just remember that. So let's get to this. It's like New York and California make it nearly impossible to get a permit to carry a firearm. You know it if you live in one of those states. They stall on reviewing applications, and for months, sometimes even years, they fail to review those applications. Some states require you to prove a special need to carry beyond just self-defense. That's offensive to me. In my opinion, it's a clear violation of the Constitution. Today, we learn the Supreme Court will take up a case out of New York that will decide gun rights in America and could put an end to many overreaching gun control initiatives. It will specifically address the issue of carrying guns outside of the home. In New York, carrying outside of the home is considered a privilege. Remember, the Supreme Court has already made it clear gun ownership inside your home is an absolute right. Outside, though, still unsettled. Well, the NRA-backed case could be the most consequential Second Amendment ruling in over a decade. We expect it to come in the fall. Why don't I bring in now the executive director of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Tom King, who was instrumental in bringing this suit all the way to the Supreme Court. Tom, welcome to the program. Grant, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to see you. Um, look, in many respects, I give President Trump credit here. We've got Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, which somehow had a switch in the court of finally taking up a very important case. Sure, you have to give President Trump credit for a lot of things, and that's that's one of them. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, he couldn't do anything about the uh, gun laws in New York State, but I guess that's up to us in the NRA. All right, so this is about carrying outside of your home. Shell issue versus May issue. May issue is, oh, maybe I think I'll let you get a permit. Shell issue, you meet the requirements, we shall issue you that permit. This has huge implications. Can you spell it out for me what this means for the rest of the nation, this case, Tom? Well, you know, I think there, there are 42 states where, uh, you know, shell issue is the rule of law. And um, there, there are eight states, mostly, uh, well, California, Washington, the New England states, where that is in, in Illinois, uh, where that is not the case, okay? If this, if we are successful in this case, it will make shell issue the rule of the land, and um, everyone will be treated equally uh, within the United States, and there will there there will be equal justice and, and equal protections for all, which is very important as far as I'm concerned in this country. So one of the things that we have all been hungry for as gun owners, uh, gun users, use self-defense, whatever it may be, uh, law-abiding gun owners, is that ability to carry outside of the home and to have it solidified by the Supreme Court, yes, that when it says that the Constitution shall not be infringed, my right to keep and bear arms, that extends beyond the, the front porch. Um, do you think you'll be successful here? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to tell, uh, you know, if... If the uh, if the judges make a decision on the intellectual basis and uh, based on the Constitution and what our forefathers meant when they wrote the Bill of Rights, they, they have to vote in our favor. I, I mean, there's no other way around it. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I think it's clear and I think the law is clear and the Constitution is clear in my pocket Constitution here. Um, lastly. You know, it's interesting to me, maybe even ironic. This case comes out of New York, 
Uh, the NRA is under fire in New York. That's no secret. But the NRA was instrumental as well, working with y'all to get this case all the way to the Supreme Court. True? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it would be impossible for a state association uh, like us to do it without the help of the NRA. Uh, that's that, that's just the bottom line. And uh, we tell people that all the time. This is a New York State Rifle and Pistol Association suit supported by the NRA. You know, and uh, people always ask, well, what does the NRA do for us? Well, this is what the NRA does. You may not have seen uh, the work that went into this uh, for the past three years. We filed this suit in 2018. But what you're seeing is the result of all of the hard work and effort that they put into it. Yeah. And Tom, I'll tell you, this will have lasting effects. I think it could be the most consequential gun ruling in at least a decade. Um, we shall see how it plays out. Keep up the fight up there in New York, and I always appreciate you coming on the program, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Good to see you again. So why is it that they're so obsessed as to not allow people to carry? I mean, all these years, people carried and not a lot of deaths were happening. So the question lies into, you know, why now? Why are they so adamant about this now? Well, climate change is coming and people are not going to have it. And as you can see, uh, you know, from your screen that I'm going to put on now, uh, it's quite incredible to see how the earth is literally shaking. You can see it literally shake and explode. This is a live feed. I'll fast forward to where they are right now, where it's taping this volcano, right? Um, took it to the live feed. This, this is how they're going to scare you into climate change. And a lot of people aren't going to buy it. Okay. They're not going to buy it. They're going to be totally against it. And people are going to come up in arms, especially when they come with their, what do they, what do they call them in England? They call them, um, uh, COVID marshals. Uh, that's quite fascinating. A COVID marshal, COVID marshal. And why do we say this? Well, a lot of people talk about John Kerry's uh, involvement uh, with Iran because his daughter married an Iranian descendant. Makes Just so you know, her husband was born in the U.S., raised in the U.S. He's a world-renowned neurosurgeon. But, 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 no one talks about his daughter a lot, except for the fact that she was married to an Iranian and they claim that, you know, the foreign minister, uh, you know, appeared or his son appeared um, to the wedding. Well, let me introduce you to John Kerry's daughter. Okay. We've talked about Africa. She's the CEO of this company called Seed Global Health. Okay. SeedGlobalHealth.org. And... This is a community source platform for clinicians. They're in Africa. I want you to see what they had to say about her in educating doctors worldwide. In some cultures, a baby dying is a common thing. You don't name your babies for certain periods of weeks or months because you don't want to give the child a name because you think you're going to lose it. People are dying of incredibly preventable diseases all the time. In Tanzania, one woman is dying every hour from a complication of pregnancy or childbirth. We don't see those numbers remotely here in the United States because of the lack of resources. Half the time, there's no medications. These are patients don't even have an emergency room that they can walk into in the times of most dire need. 
it's an incredibly dire situation. Things that we know well in a country like the United States, we can bring that expertise and support to many of the places that we work. The program now works in five countries, uh, 34 sites, and we've sent 155 volunteers over the last four years. Some of the success we've seen is not only just in the 1,300 health professionals we've helped train, the successes are certainly in the stories. One of our volunteers, within six hours of arriving at her site, she walks into the theater and she sees a pregnant woman who's about to undergo an operation who's effectively dying. And she realizes she can't save the mother, but she tries to save the babies, and she loses them too. She's devastated by this, and the next day she says it happened again. Only this time, she was actually able to perform the life-saving surgery that saved this mother's life, and this is a mother of five children. And then she taught her counterparts how to do this same life-saving surgery so that when it happens again, they're now empowered to save people. And that mind shift and empowerment of her colleagues was really profound. That's what we're trying to do. There's a responsibility to be engaged and to give back, and I hold that really dear. There is so much need in the world, but there doesn't need to be. And I think we can bridge that divide if we really band together and we're smart about how we engage the world. So that is John Kerry's daughter. Look at all the sponsors that they have. Pfizer, Mass General, her husband's there, by the way. George Washington University, FedEx. Bank of America, the Abbott Fund, all these poor Africans being experimented on, you know, because they're poor. And so the scarcity of the vaccine, but also of imagination and political will, the world needs many more coronavirus vaccines. We need to test, 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 test. See, people don't talk about that. The interests they have in these things. They really don't. And that's what's sad. I'm going to take you back in time. Now, this is an old uh, video that shows um, that's more, you know, social justice, but real. I want you guys to, to know that the history of medicine has always been dark. In England and Ireland, the College of Surgeons used to take poor people and to learn surgery they used to cut open people alive to see where they would bleed and how they work, how the bodies are, and they test experiments. I have in a previous episode lined out how Dr. Fauci and the NIH actually convinced there's only one person that spoke up because she had a sister that would speak for her, where she was a black woman, single mom, but she had a job who went to the doctor and they told her that she had AIDS, that she had HIV, and she didn't. Turns out she didn't. But they told her that because, you know, she has a son and they're so, um, you know, caring for her, that they're going to put her on this therapy for HIV. She never had AIDS or HIV, but she died from being a guinea pig because they lied to her. So now... The people of the United States, you know, can't trust their clinicians and their labs. They can't because how do you know that that's real? And they killed this woman by testing the toxicity level of HIV medications. And Dr. Fauci was part of that. They preyed on those that were in poverty. And they have done it in the U.S. too. 
I want you guys to take a listen to this, which is really important because it's not only done here. This is what they're doing in Africa. This is what the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs. This is what they do to the slaves they have on the Salt Islands in Korea. South Korea has slaves. They actually steal people from South Korea and take them out to the Salt Islands to slave work. This isn't, oh, I'm just saying it. So slavery still exists. Our nation has been trying to gut that out, but they're doing it under different guises. Through human and child trafficking, they're able to obtain victims. And I've told you this many, many times before. Yes, a lot of these people, these souls that are being trafficked, both adults and children, are used for pleasure, slavery, and sustenance, right? But they do have farms for the sustenance part. The majority are for experiments. Watch this and listen to this. One's statue of a doctor named James Marion Sims, whose brilliant achievement carried the fame of American surgery throughout the entire world. He's the guy who created the vaginal speculum, an instrument gynecologists use for examination. He pioneered the surgical repair for fistula, a complication from childbirth, and became known as the father of modern gynecology. But that brilliant achievement was the result of a series of excruciating experimental surgeries that he conducted on enslaved women. In a lot of ways, Sims epitomizes the story of American medicine for black women. It's a system that's failing them to this day. From infant mortality to life expectancy, the racial disparities in healthcare are staggering. The gulf between black and white might be widest when we look at maternal mortality, with black women three to four times more likely to die in connection with pregnancy or birth than white women. And that divide can be traced back to doctors like Sims, who contributed to a long, largely overlooked history of institutional racism in medicine. Trying to understand a historical problem without knowing its history is like trying to treat a patient without eliciting a thorough medical history. You're doomed to failure. That's Harriet Washington, a medical ethicist and author who chronicled the intersection of race and medicine in her book, Medical Apartheid. While many of the stark racial disparities in healthcare can be attributed to environmental and economic factors like access to good healthcare, studies show that minority patients tend to receive a lower quality of care than non-minorities, even when they have the same types of health insurance or the same ability to pay for care. As African-Americans, we've been abused for so long, consistently by the system, why should we trust it? Why should we go to it when ill? And that's iatrophobia. That's a fear of the healer, you know, inculcated by the behavior of those healers, unfortunately. It starts with slavery. Doctors relied on slave owners for financial stability. They accompanied plantation masters to auctions to verify the fitness of slaves and were called in to treat sick slaves to protect their owners' investments. In 1807, Congress abolished the importation of slaves and in turn pushed black women to have more children, to essentially breed slaves. Founding father Thomas Jefferson later wrote, I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man on the farm. Around the 1830s, the abolitionist movement led to the rise of what was called Negro medicine, or efforts to identify black inferiority to justify slavery. And there were polygenists who tried to use both science and the Bible to find proof that races evolved from different origins. The 1830s also marked the beginning of recorded experimentation on black women's bodies. One doctor performed experimental C-sections on slaves. 
Another one perfected the dangerous ovariotomy, or removal of an ovary by testing the procedure on slave women. In fact, half the original articles in the 1836 Southern Medical and Surgical Journal dealt with experiments on black people. And then, of course, there was James Marion Sims, whose reputation is etched in history and on that statue in Central Park. Between 1845 and 1849, Sims began performing experimental surgeries on a 17-year-old slave named Anarka. He eventually performed 30 operations on Anarka and more surgeries on about 11 other female slaves. When his male colleagues could no longer bear to assist him in inflicting pain on the women, the slaves took turns restraining one another. Yet paintings depicting Sims, Anarka, and other slave women presented a subdued version of his experiments. Even though anesthesia was introduced in 1846, Sims chose not to use it for his experimentation with slaves. His practices echoed one of the most prevalent and dangerous beliefs in medicine at the time, that Black people did not feel pain or anxiety. This book from 1851, titled The Natural History of Human Species, claimed the American dark races bear with indifference, tortures insupportable to a white man. Studies released as recently as last year demonstrate that Black people are less likely to be treated for pain, particularly in the ER. There's even one from a children's hospital that found the same to be true for kids. And just this year, Pearson Education, a leading educational publisher, issued an apology and recalled nursing textbooks that included racist stereotypes, like this section that said Black people often report higher pain intensity than other cultures. Well, what does it mean when you say that someone doesn't feel pain? Among other things, you're speaking about their humanity. These are all part of that suite of beliefs emanating from the 19th century that we still have not shaken off. Despite all our knowledge and sophistication, they're deeply ingrained. Doctors like Sims might fit the Dr. Frankenstein stereotype, but they weren't outliers. Historically, Southern doctors who used black bodies for troubling experiments were the norm. It's a very common question. How can we judge our forebears? You know, those guys in the 18th century who practiced medicine in a way that appalls us today. You know, we think, how could you do that? I did not judge the practitioners based on our own ethics. I judged them based on the ethics of their time. It was not acceptable back then. We just did not hear from the people who protested against it. After the Civil War ended, the 1900s brought a wave of immigrants to the U.S. It sparked a race panic and coincided with the birth of the American eugenics movement. One of the movement's key objectives was to reduce the childbearing potential of the poor and disabled. Leaders included birth control pioneer and Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger, who eventually devised the controversial Negro Project, or family planning centers that pushed birth control in the Black South. It was a project that even garnered support from W.E.B. Du Bois, a founder of the NAACP, who wrote that Black people bred carelessly and disastrously. By the mid-1930s, more than half the states passed pro-sterilization laws. And often, sterilization was forced. In 1961, future civil rights leader Fannie Lou Hamer went to the hospital to have a tumor removed, but was subjected to a hysterectomy without consent. The procedure, which rendered women infertile without their knowledge, was so common in the South that Hamer is said to have dubbed it the Mississippi appendectomy. African-American babies were no longer economically valuable. And African-Americans themselves had gone from being a resource to a nuisance. In June of 1973, the SPLC uncovered 100 to 150,000 cases of women who had been sterilized with federal funds in Alabama. Half the women were Black. 
In recent decades, women of color continue to be exposed to dubious reproductive health programs. In December 1990, the FDA approved a contraceptive called Norplant, and it was selectively marketed to black teenagers in Baltimore schools. You know, one of the current birth control methods now in the United States is Norplant. Norplant fans like David Duke, the former KKK Grand Wizard, even introduced legislation to give women on welfare an annual reward of $100 if they agreed to get Norplant. And it's time we start to encourage welfare mothers to be responsible. That bill never passed. But the implant ignited a debate on whether long-term contraception, like Norplant that lasted five years, could be used as a form of social engineering when pushed to specific communities. Today, as we continue to lose Black mothers at alarming rates, a deeper look at the past may be a good step towards creating a more equitable healthcare system. Hi guys, thanks for watching. Of course, there's a lot more to the history of how the U.S. medical system has mistreated people of color than we Well, you know, this is it. They have a history of doing this. And who's they? Our politicians. Remember David Duke and his Norplant. All of that has been pushed by the supposed faux selected admin. You have to remember that. Because they praise Planned Parenthood, which was created by Sanger. And now they're complaining that the census showed that there were less people in our nation. Considering all the illegal migrants that are here, that makes you cock your head that we are not reproducing. I've said this before. Our ratios are going down. And what's funny is, you know, these were experiments being done on slaves. Well, we have an experimental vaccine. As you heard Fauci say himself, it's experimental. We have states and even the selected faux president claiming that you get money to join this study. Not only that, they're pushing it on the minorities. Listen to this report. It'll make your skin crawl. Why whites are getting the vaccine disproportionately more than blacks to make the black Americans flock to go and get jabbed because they want to get rid of them. <laughs> this is incredible. When I saw it, you know, it was racist, right? It's because they wanted them to think there's scarcity and that, that it's racist that white people are getting it, not black people, right? White Americans are getting COVID vaccines at significantly higher rates than black Americans. That's according to new analysis from Kaiser Health. Take Mississippi, for example. More than 3% of white people across the state got a shot in the arm, but just 1.3% of black people. Same story in Florida, North Carolina, Nebraska, and Indiana. Every state that gives us data broken down by race, there's a dramatic disparity. And nowhere is it more stark than in Pennsylvania. That's because they're smarter. They're like, yeah, I'm not ready to go get you. You can have that. I'm going to wait and see because this is an experiment. But they're trying to urge the ones that see it as, oh, my gosh, all the white people are going. They want to eradicate us and not give us the vaccine because there are people that think like that. And it's just a perpetuation of them experimenting on those that are a minority. They're the ones that are getting the whiplash of it. Remember, that's the way it always has been. Their data shows white people are vaccinated at a rate four times higher than that of black people, with one group of doctors working to bridge that gap. Here's NBC's Priscilla Thompson. 
Well, Chef, those numbers are very concerning, particularly for the doctors who are on the ground doing this work. It's why the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium stood up this clinic to get those shots into the arms of Black folks. Uh, they've already vaccinated hundreds of people at this site today, and more than 16,000 people have registered requesting an appointment from this organization. And Dr. Ayla Stanford, who founded this program, says that she needs more support. Take a listen. I need more vaccine, I need more personnel, and I need sustainable financial support. Because right now, everything we're doing is based on my bank account. Right now, we're the answer for every need in the community. Every need, we're the answer. Latinx community, it's us. Homeless, it's us. Black, it's us. And the Biden administration has promised 100 million shots in the first 100 days, and they have promised to distribute those in a way that is equitable. And as for Dr. Stanford, she says that she is hopeful and optimistic about what the administration will be able to do, but that she'll believe it when she sees it. Shepard Smith here. Wow, right? That's just wow. Wow. They're targeting them. And the thing is, the deception is so great. It is so great that even the people that are distributing these vaccines have no idea. Even people in elected office have no idea because they're that mesmerized. And when people realize it's only a submission tactic and it has nothing to do with your health and your prosperity, well, then you get angry. And that's where we're going to have really big problems, really really big problems. And and that's a little bit, not a little bit, that's very terrifying. If you ask me, that is very terrifying to understand just how ingrained it is. And, and, you know, and it's kind of like, can they not see it? Of course they can. But is anyone listening to them that they can see it? No, it's all a big lie. That's what they say. This is one of the greatest deceptions, one of many, because <laughs> the deceptions have been going on for a very, very, very long time. On that note, guys, God bless. I'll see you guys tomorrow, same time, same place. For those on Twitch, we're going to raid. God bless. I don't want to set the word on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart in my heart I have but one desire and that one is you, no other will do. I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. And with your admission, you'd feel the same. I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire.
I just wanna start 